Hello and welcome to Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and joining me today in studio once again, they were here before and they're back now again, Jonathan Hohenschild, Director of the Allied Communications and Technology Task Force, and James Tarnowski, Policy Analyst, handling tech and innovation at Libertas. Jonathan, James, welcome back. How are you guys doing today? Pleasure to be back. Doing wonderful. It's great to be back and I'm doing great too. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you guys. It's sunny outside, so it's starting to warm up a little bit. I'm in a good mood, but even better because I'm talking policy with you guys. So let's kick things off today. We're going to be discussing regulations. And James, I'm looking forward to hearing your insight on this topic. Now, first off, Utah recently passed a law that hits the brakes on new regulations for businesses during the pandemic. Now, the whole the last year and a half has been dominated by the pandemic, COVID-19 and the amount of regulations put on businesses in many states and jurisdictions has been crushing. So for our listeners who may not be in the know, what is this bill that was passed in Utah and what does it do? That's a great question. Thank you. When it comes to what was passed in Utah, it was called House Bill 217, and that was the regulatory sandbox amendments. And what it does was it created a first in the nation, all-inclusive regulatory sandbox. And what that means is that any industry that feels like there is a state law or state regulation that might be overburdensome or unnecessary could flag that regulation. And if they were doing something innovative, and trying to adjust in this new post-COVID world, that they could have a, a safe space to operate for for a limited period of time. And we could observe it. Rather than saying no or trying to cudgel them from a regulator's perspective, which we've seen with innovative companies in the past, with Uber, with Lyft, with Toro, with Airbnb, rather than engage in this you know, conflicting kind of argument with these companies, we want to try to understand them. And this program is great for exactly that. And basically, what we want to try to do here is we want to facilitate innovation and have Utah be at the cutting edge of the latest and greatest when it comes to technology. We have Silicon Slopes, which is one of the one of the larger tech hubs in the country after Silicon Valley out in California. And so that's one angle. And then the other is to help provide this environment where we can help businesses recover in a post-pandemic world because they have just been hurting so bad during this time period. And this program can offer a great opportunity for doing just that. That's really some interesting points. I'm big on innovation. Obviously, working in technology policy, one of the advantages is you kind of get a look around the corner, see what's coming down the pike, so to speak. So as we look at innovation and spurring innovation. What are some of the, lack of better term, problems that led you and Utah to kind of promote this idea of a kind of all technology, all all above approach to the regulatory sandbox? Yeah, that's a great question. When it comes to how we came about to supporting this kind of a concept, it was that we just saw more often than not over the past half decade or so, many instances where new industries were popping up with new products and they did not quite fit into a regulatory model that was designed for you know decades prior in the 1950s or, or earlier. And the problem is, is that we're increasingly shifting to a 21st century economy that's more dynamic, that's more vibrant than that. And when you have these new industries popping up, 
they're kind of running afoul of some of these antiquated regulatory models because they just don't quite fit. So we saw this as early as 2014 with the development and emergence of this concept called financial technology. These financial technology companies were getting slammed with banking regulations when they were not necessarily doing that. So that was a very square peg round hole problem that we saw emerging. And the UK realized that that was problematic and they wanted to get out in front of it. So the Financial Conduct Authority created the world's first financial technology sandbox. And this was, again, targeted at the financial technology sector because they saw that this was an emerging industry where regulations didn't quite line up well with what the product actually was. So the point of the program was to try to find more tailored sets of rules that could apply to this newer industry. And that program was wildly successful, to say the least. In its time since it came out in 2016, there have been over 700 participants in that sandbox. And some studies show that companies that participated in that sandbox have had better access to capital, have been able to raise capital more easily, and have a better trajectory towards becoming successful on their own, as opposed to if you're just doing a straight startup company. So that was actually something that was really promising. And since then, we've seen this particular model get incorporated all over the world. So South Korea, Japan, Latin America, Canada, Australia, and and Mexico, I even believe, to some degree. All these countries are integrating these programs to some degree because they, they realize that they might not be thinking about this the right way and they want to be flexible. And that's why it's really popular. And Utah saw this as an opportunity that they could take advantage of. So in the state, we passed our own fintech sandbox. It was the third in the nation, I believe, after Arizona and uh, I want to say Wyoming. And then we also realized that it could also be great for other kinds of industries because it's not just fintech that's having these issues. There's all kinds of industries that are strife with regulations that we could target. So then Utah adopted an insurance sandbox that was trying to figure out how we can innovate within the insurance industry to lower premiums, because if there's one thing that's been consistently a problem over the past decade plus, it's that insurance premiums don't seem to be going down at all. And it's been very expensive for people to take care of themselves. And this was a great opportunity to hopefully get some innovation there. And then also one of the other big industries that has a lot of problems that Utah tackled was legal services. It's very costly to engage in the legal system in the United States. And that means that it's disproportionately harder for low-income people to get access to that system. And Utah recognized that. So they set out and create a first-in-the-nation legal services sandbox. So this allowed for expanded scope of practice for non-lawyers and paralegals. And it also allowed for uh, other kinds of innovations as far as allowing for different structures of ownership of law firms, which traditionally, they could only be owned by lawyers. So this has been something that Utah has been very embraceful of. And what we realized is that it doesn't make sense to target each industry by industry by industry, because then you run into the problem of governments picking winners and losers. So we decided to just open it up to any industry in this legislation that was just passed in Utah. So in that way, every industry can really unleash its innovative you know, capabilities and unleash human ingenuity in the process. Yeah, some really good ideas. Um... You know, I, I kind of have a, a twofold question, or maybe it's it's actually two separate questions, but in my mind, they're somewhat linked. And that would be one of the kind of objections we've seen, or one of the barriers, I guess, we've seen to innovation as a whole are incumbent industries. 
you know, Uber and Lyft came on the market and we didn't know, lack of better term, how powerful the taxi interests were until they started disrupting the business. And there was a lot of back and forth and there was a lot of concern early on that especially local governments were passing ordinances and legislation to protect the taxi unions and basically push Uber and Lyft out. And if it weren't for a lot of state actions setting the regulatory framework, Uber and Lyft may not exist today because of that that interest. So one, as a barrier to innovation, you kind of have this incumbent interest. And the thing about innovation is we don't know what's next. So we don't know what incumbent interests are going to be exposed. But then you also have kind of like this counter argument that there's something to do with safety, that the taxis are safer because they're regulated, or in the case of Airbnb, that hotels are safer because they're heavily regulated. So I guess my questions with that kind of background, the questions are are twofold. How does a regulatory sandbox protect against incumbent interests? So, So obviously we're talking about regulation, but again, the taxi industry was pushing local governments to regulate Uber and Lyft. So how does it protect against the, lack of a better term, private incumbent interests? But then on the other side, how does a regulatory sandbox actually operate to ensure that consumers at least have some degree of confidence or safety in the emerging technology? Those are both great questions. And it's definitely interesting. When we talk about Uber and Lyft, it's it's kind of amazing to think about now because they're they're you know existing and they're doing great and the taxi cab industry god they they're doing horribly. I'm from New York, so I remember when the taxi cab medallion was over a million dollars and and that's why they were so upset when Uber was coming in. But it's also worth noting that like one of the primary reasons that you see like Uber and Lyft and some of these other companies have the success that they did was that they were also heavily backed by venture capital which meant that they could afford the lawyers to sit there and take on these legal battles with these different entities all across the country. And smaller firms, entrepreneurs that are just getting started out, they might not have that luxury. So the sandbox is actually great for that purpose because you can go and push on incumbent interests without having necessarily, it's on a smaller scale, so you're not necessarily triggering too much angst, so to say. And also there's something to be said that even these industries that are incumbent recognize that they could stand to benefit from the innovations that come out of these sandbox programs. So they don't want to necessarily hinder a sandbox that could theoretically benefit them in the long run. And a great example of this actually is with the financial technology sandboxes. A lot of those companies that came out with innovative products in that sector ended up partnering up with a lot of incumbents because what they were producing from a product standpoint actually lined up very well with the incumbent interest. We saw banks integrating financial technology products in their everyday operations, and that actually benefited consumers in the long run. So there's something to be said that I think that you know the, the incumbent interests are something that you'll always have to monitor and make sure that they're not trying to capture any of these programs. But at the same time, it also does serve a benefit to them, too, if they kind of let it go as it would. When it comes to the consumer safety aspect, a lot of these programs, the sandbox programs, are actually pretty cognizant of that particular question. So more often than not, you see that these companies have to display that they are in a sandbox program. There's usually a cap as to how many people are exposed to potentially the risk of participating with a product that might be offered by a sandbox participant. 
there's a lot of transparency measures that are typically in this kind of legislation. And if somebody is doing something wrong and they do bring legitimate harm to a consumer, then they can get removed from the program too. So there is some enforcement mechanism that you see there. And also just good incentive, because if you want to survive as a, as a sandbox participant, you don't want to obviously harm consumers. And, and to that end, while these kinds of programs do waive state regulations or law in certain instances, it doesn't go, and in our case, for our legislation in Utah, it doesn't necessarily waive civil liability aspects that come out of any incidents that, that emerge from that product being in a marketplace. So... There's, there's all kinds of things, I think, that try to strike the right balance between spurring innovation without compromising the health and safety and financial well-being of consumers in the state of Utah or in other states or countries for that matter, too. Yeah, that's, that's actually great. And I like one of the lines in your white paper on this. It's a never-say-no approach, especially to innovation. So Utah's been great. Utah's leading the way. What are other actions taken by lawmakers outside of Utah or even inside Utah to support businesses from the dead weight of regulation or freeing them from it? Or even put another way, in a perfect world or in your utopia, what would you do to promote these regulatory sandboxes or what other actions would you take to ensure that companies and individuals can continue to innovate and offer products and services that we haven't dreamed of yet to Utahns and anywhere else in the country? That's a great question. And it's one that we definitely think about a lot. And for me, I think the answer is in just expansion, right? If we can get more states adopting regulatory sandboxes and they can set up reciprocity agreements, then it means that more people can get exposed to new great goods and services at a rapid pace than they otherwise might not be able to. And then just in general, I think it's just healthy for the state to engage actively in dynamic retroactive review of their regulations. I know, for example, in Utah, I believe the running rule is that every five years they go and review their regulations. But the reality is, is again, when we're in this dynamic economy that's shifting and, and really the precipice of technology can prop up new industries at a pretty fast pace, we want to make sure that we have a, a flexible regulatory environment to accommodate for that. Another thing that I think is important is just like with our bill, and I think it would be cool for other states to integrate this kind of stuff too, we actually set up not just a sandbox, but we set up a website where businesses and individuals could flag regulations that they think are problematic or overburdensome because not everybody is going to be innovative, right? And I think we we can acknowledge that it's not a big deal in my in my opinion. I think that what matters is that we provide a good environment for businesses to succeed and we want to be agnostic about how that is applied. It shouldn't just be for entrepreneurs, but it should be for business people in general. So we have this website that allows for businesses to flag those regulations and then the department, uh, the Office of Regulatory Relief in this case, would review those regulations and try to find the data to support whether or not that regulation is in fact overburdensome or not, or whether or not it could be modified to something uh, following more of like a less restrictive means model. And that I think is great because now you're, you're having two kinds of dynamic regulatory reform. One is uh, what I would like to call spurring an innovation hub. I call it an innovation incubator. So that way you can go and constantly be redefining the edge when it comes to the technology perspective. And then on the other, it's just proactive dynamic regulatory reform 
because you have a tighter feedback mechanism between the regulators and the regulated, right? If we can have businesses and regulators having a better relationship and understanding how the regulations and the rules that are being set are impacting them, then I think we can come to a better understanding of what kinds of rules might make best sense on a state level for all these businesses. Absolutely. Now, a quick message from Alec concerning an exciting event coming this summer, happens every year. A quick message courtesy of Alec. This July, join the American Legislative Exchange Council for its annual meeting in beautiful Salt Lake City. Join fellow thought leaders, listen to exciting speakers, and take part in building a better future for America. For more information and to register, go to alec.org slash Salt Lake. We'll see you in person in Utah. All right, back to our conversation. So based on what we discussed here today, in the realm of the sandbox and elsewhere, what else can lawmakers do to protect businesses going forward with the regulations? What new ideas are on the pipeline coming out soon? Question for both of you. We'll start with you, James, first, and then we'll go to you, Jonathan. I think we've seen a whole host of things coming out. Like I said before, the regulatory sandbox is a new tool that certainly all these states are, are considering in some way or another. I think another way that you can do it like I said, uh, that was a part of our bill that I think is worthwhile is the website where businesses can flag regulations. That way you have a tighter feedback mechanism. I think another thing that you can do is just try to have implement a least restrictive means analysis somewhere in legislation. I believe Nebraska has something like this, and it's actually great because it forces regulators to abide by some level of scrutiny when they're setting up rules rather than just, than just abiding by special interests, maybe, that might be dictating things. And then I just think it's about, again, figuring out how we can uh, set up the right framework for, for businesses to, to be successful, working with upskilling your labor force so that way you can attract more talent into the state and have businesses want to relocate there because you have the institutions in place for it. Personally, something else I like too are these things called chancery courts, which are specialized for businesses to deal with corporate law matters. So typically this used to just be in Delaware and that's why you saw all the banks incorporated in Delaware. But then Wyoming did it just a couple of years ago, I think. And, and they did that with their cryptocurrency legislation too. And now they're booming as a state with attracting new startups and everything. So there's a whole host of tools that states can consider. And I'm so excited for the future because I think that there's a lot of ways that states can truly embrace innovation to make themselves get into the 21st century and set themselves up for long-term success. Yeah, I think James pretty much hit it there. I think from the ALEC perspective, it's continuing to have these discussions. And again, we'll be in Salt Lake City for the annual meeting. And I think it's going to be a great opportunity to kind of drill down more into like the sandbox type approach and some of the things James is suggesting and getting it before legislators face-to-face -face and hopefully encouraging them to think creatively and think strategically for different ways to promote innovation and different ways to open up their states to innovative ideas, to new ideas, and to create the environment necessary to experiment. Definitely. This has been so insightful and so informative, guys. Jonathan, James, Thank you for coming on across the states. I hope we can come back again sometime soon and talk more about this. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. It's thank you both. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and we will catch you next time here on the podcast. 
Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.